This is the Line 4 Podcast. I'm Will Bardwell. I spend a lot of time thinking about the last scene in Three Days of the Condor. And by the way, if you haven't seen it, fast forward a couple of minutes because spoilers are coming. But also, come on, it's nearly a 50-year-old movie. Anyway, Robert Redford has finally put all the pieces together on this secret, nefarious government conspiracy, and he and the conspiracy's architect are having this climactic dialogue, and the villain tells Redford that he's going to bring him in. And that's when Redford tells him that it's too late. He's blown the lid off the whole thing, that he told the whole story to the New York Times, and that this big secret isn't going to be a secret much longer. He's won. And as Redford is walking away, the villain shouts out to him, how do you know they'll print it? And for the first time in the whole scene, Redford realizes that he's not in control. And you can see the panic on his face. And he says, they'll print it. But the way he says it, you can tell he's trying to convince himself as much as anything. And the villain responds, but how do you know? And that's the last line in the whole movie. It's one of my favorite movie endings ever, because it's so ambiguous. The film spends two hours challenging your faith in the institution of government. And suddenly, right there in the last 60 seconds of the movie, it challenges your faith in another institution, the press. And as an audience member, your own biases about the press determine whether you see it as a hopeful ending or a bleak ending. If you believe, like I do, that the press is made up of good reporters doing their absolute best day in and day out to uncover and report hard truths, then you probably walk away from that scene thinking that the New York Times publishes the story and that Robert Redford wins. But if you're more cynical about the press, if you believe that its gatekeepers have calculated ulterior motives, then you probably walk away from Three Days at the Condor not feeling too good about Robert Redford's life expectancy. There is, though, a third possibility. The press is full of hard-working journalists whose only agenda is telling the truth, but that those reporters sometimes answer to leadership whose motives aren't so unconflicted. Whatever your view of golf media, understanding the landscape is important. Because golf media doesn't exist in a vacuum. The same forces that are pushing and pulling on the New York Times and Huffington Post are also pushing and pulling on Golf Digest and No Lane Up. In 2015, editorial staff at the Las Vegas Review-Journal protested the newspapers purchased by Sheldon Adelson, who was a big-time casino owner and a huge donor in the Republican Party. In 2018, employees at the Denver Post protested the hedge fund that owned the paper out of frustration that ownership had been censoring its reporting on venture capitalism's effects on local journalism. And when conflicts of interest are allowed to fester in one corner of mass media, you can bet they'll fester in other areas too, especially in golf media, which keeps an unusually cozy relationships with the subjects it covers. We talk a lot about the media and the press in this country. But the truth is that the decisions about what the press covers, and what it doesn't cover, and how it covers it, and who covers it, and who remains employed to cover anything at all, those decisions are often not made by reporters or producers. They're made by ownership. Journalists can wake up every morning determined to do their best. 
but a newsroom's best intentions usually don't match up against ownership hell-bent on exploiting its own conflicts of interest or prioritizing a profit margin above delivering the news. So today, the Line 4 podcast takes a look at golf media's landscape. What does it look like compared to a generation ago? What can that tell us about where it might be going? But to understand those questions, first, you have to go back 25 years. Think about where we were in 1996. Tiger Woods was turning pro. Sports Illustrated's Golf Extra Supplement had started running with the magazine just a couple of years prior. And Golf Channel had just launched. It was probably the opening moment of the biggest heyday golf media has ever had. It must seem like a hundred years ago to the people that Golf Channel laid off in 2020. When I was growing up, I was always like obsessed with the Today Show and obsessed with like the news. And I would stand in front of the TV and like act like I was on the news and like repeat what they were saying. That's Samantha Marks, who worked at Golf Channel for about a year and a half from the beginning of 2019 to the second half of 2020. When Golf Channel moved from Orlando to Connecticut to consolidate itself for the rest of NBC Sports Group's operation, About 400 Golf Channel employees lost their jobs. Samantha was one of them. She now runs a marketing firm called Scram Marketing. So I was mostly on the digital side. We were, did a lot of stuff with um, websites and uh, Twitter. So when you had the guys like Ryan Lavner, um, Will Gray, Rex Hoggard, uh, what's the other one's name? Randy Mill, he was my favorite. Um, you had all those guys who would who would be on site writing the content and then they would send it back to our team and we would proofread it, put a photo to it, put it on the website, tweet it out. Um, we were kind of the middleman between, you know, what was written and then what was actually published. And then um, we did a lot of like play by plays, tweeting during the tournament, um, especially during majors. Um, so yeah, it was really fun. And I, I liked being on the Twitter side cause that was, you know, kind of where I find my humor, but. <laughs> Before the layoffs happened last year, had, had there been any rumblings that something like that might be out there? Yeah. So that's actually funny that you asked that because no. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and I think that, I think that there was, if you were in the building, Um, my team, we all worked from home. Mm -hmm. And so when we got the code red email for like an emergency meeting, so to speak, it was like, well, I have no idea what this is about. And then you get into the office and there's a couple hundred people in there. And then they're all talking about, you know, I just hear the word like Connecticut, Connecticut. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was very vague at first. Um, Molly and Jeff were just like... By the way, that's Molly Solomon and Jeff Russell. Molly Solomon is an executive vice president at Golf Channel, and Jeff Russell is executive editor. Molly and Jeff were just like, yeah, you know, this is what's happening, relocating. And I remember one of the first things she said was like, there's great severance packages. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, what is happening? Um, and so I definitely feel like a lot of people were blindsided by it for sure. Um, especially I would say the younger people like me and a couple of my coworkers just, I mean, had no idea. Um, so very strange, but I mean, for me, luckily, like I landed on my feet better than I was before. Um, so, but I know that a lot of people probably didn't. 
were you ever given an explanation for why your position was chosen to be eliminated or did you just sort of find out one day hey yours is yours is one of them so the way that it kind of worked um was that everybody was put in like phases and if you were staying then you were staying and your job was pretty much going to be transferred to um connecticut now that was a very small percentage of people most people like i when i was laid off i was in the first phase so i august 29th was the first last day of a group of people so like we were told you know several months earlier and then we had to wait till our last day um, in order to get our severance package, right? Like if we were to quit and go somewhere else, then that wouldn't be, um, awarded to us. So there were different phases, like I said, and then there were two of us in the first phase on my team. And then, a, a, like I think three, uh, in the second phase. However, if I was laid off on August 29th, there were a handful of jobs on the, NBC sports or NBC universal website, excuse me, where I could go apply for them. Now, I mean, they didn't really have anything to do with my skill set, but it was like senior writer. Um, there was a digital position, but I'm, and I, I interviewed for it, but I didn't get it. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of how it worked for the people who were laid off. It was kind of like, here you're laid off. I mean, you do have another chance to stay if you like fit these very specific roles. Um, but yeah, that was kind of how it played out. But I was in the first phase and I just got a call from my boss's boss um, saying like, hey, I hate to tell you this, but you know, <laughs> this is how it is. And your last day is this and make an appointment to turn in your computer and your phone and all that stuff. Companies rarely lay off 400 people for just one reason. And what happened to Golf Channel is no exception. It's complicated. But it would be hard to pretend that the price tag attached to the PGA Tour's broadcast rights didn't have something to do with it. In 2020, the PGA Tour finished renegotiating its broadcast rights agreement with CBS and NBC. Golf Channel is owned by NBC. The nine-year agreement that resulted looked a lot like the agreement that it replaced. One big difference, though, was the cost of those broadcast rights, about $700 million per year, up from about $400 million per year. Math is what it is. NBC had to make up that cost difference somewhere. So consolidating its Golf Channel operation in Orlando with its operation in Connecticut made a lot of sense. And operationally, why not? Because broadcasting a golf tournament has never been easier. The big cost is how many people you have to send to an event. That's Dr. Andrew Selipak. He teaches media and sports at the University of Florida. You know, you've got to send the announcers. You've got to send the um, camera people. You've got to send the production people. You've got to put the production truck there. Um, you know, and, and you're you're laying all these wires and everything else. And then to send the signal back to a central hub and then for it to be broadcast from there. The technology is just, it, it, the technology has kind of been around and it, it's really kind of gotten better recently and it's been helped by a number of things, but um, I, I don't know how much of an NFL fan you are. I was watching one of the games, one of the playoff games and I, I can't remember. I can't remember which one it was, 
one of the announcers was like, oh, I guess had, had a COVID exposure and he couldn't do the game from the stadium in the broadcast booth and he was at home. So one of the announcers was in the broadcast booth. The other one was at home. I think it was Mike Tirico. I don't know why that is coming out the most. I seem to recall this. Yeah. So you didn't have both announcers in the booth broadcasting the game. You had one at home. You have the technology is we're there to where you don't need to have the announcers at the stadium at all. They can get the signal and, and basically broad do the game live. And, you know, because of COVID and everything else, some of the English premier leagues, NHL is getting into it. You're not sending, if you're not sending the announcers to be in the booth, you don't have to have the, the production people there to set up the booth. You're sending the signal back. You cut out that part. You start cutting out the truck itself and you just have camera people who are broadcasting their signal and the, the signal speed is fast enough. And then you have the computers that are able to kind of cloud share the video coverage. So you and I are both looking at the footage. I'm able to cut up some highlights. I'm able to cut up things from my computer here and you can do it from your computer there. Well, now we don't need the broadcast truck there. All we need is the camera people. So we have, the, there's and the, the cost of travel, the cost of traveling with all that equipment, putting us up in hotels and everything else, we've just cheapened this by a lot. And the technology's kind of been around. COVID basically put it in the hyperspeed. And British, uh, English soccer is being covered this way. Some of the NHL has been covered this way. We saw it with an NFL game. That's going to hit everything, which means for any media company covering sports, they're going to be just letting people go left and right because you suddenly don't need as many people. Speaking of costs, Line 4 is proud to make high-quality storytelling free to its readers, and now its listeners. But that storytelling isn't free to produce. So if you're able to support Line 4 storytelling, then please consider buying one of the new Line 4 golf towels. They are legitimately sharp. They're blue with the white Line 4 logo on them. They've got that really nice waffle-style weave to them. They're just $24 each, plus $2 for postage. It's a great way to support Line 4 and to sharpen up your golf bag here at the beginning of the season. If you're interested, find me on Twitter and send me a direct message. You can find me at either at Will Bardwell or at Line 4. Now, back to the show. And back to this picture that Dr. Selipak is painting of sports broadcasters being able to do what they do now, but with less of a physical presence on site thanks to technology. So let's think about that picture for a minute. On the one hand, everybody likes better golf broadcasts. If technology is making that job easier and less expensive, then that's not bad per se. And if broadcasters can operate with lighter on-site footprints and less built-in costs, then that opens up all sorts of possibilities, like more broadcasts from smaller events or customized viewing options, like the build-your-own broadcast feature that the Masters rolled out in 2020. On the other hand, as the cost of broadcasting rights goes up, broadcasters necessarily have more and more of their eggs in the pro golf basket. They necessarily become more dependent on the tours they broadcast 
because fewer and fewer of their resources are devoted elsewhere. And this brings us to a phenomenon in golf media that I'm calling centralization and decentralization. But maybe even those terms aren't accurate. Maybe it'd be fairer to call it contraction and fragmentation. Either way, it seems to me that there are two big things going on in golf media. On the one hand, the traditional voices in the room, the legacy media like Golf Channel, Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, they're becoming less independent of the subjects they cover, like PGA Tour pros and equipment companies. Meanwhile, the number of microphones on that side of the room is growing smaller, and fewer outlets are holding those microphones, since local news outlets and even sports outlets that aren't golf-specific are dedicating less and less coverage to golf. So yeah, maybe those legacy golf media hold fewer microphones than they used to, but those microphones now have less and less competition with one another, so their influence has been centralized. I'm calling that centralization. But at the same time, you've got something very different going on, where the internet has made possible these independent golf media outlets that never would have been possible 25 years ago. Some of them are really well-known, like No Laying Up and Fried Egg and, I guess, Barstool, all the way down to golf-specific Twitter accounts that don't do anything but post on social media. But the overwhelming majority of voices on this decentralized side of the spectrum are small and control only a teeny tiny sliver of the total golf media landscape. These voices are mostly independent from obvious conflicts of interest, like the ones dominating at Golf Magazine and Golf.com, for example. But again, 99% of these voices don't carry much sway. That's decentralization, or fragmentation, if you want to call it that. Point is, you've got these two things going on at the same time that seem inconsistent with one another. And the fact that those two ecosystems seem to be doing different things probably has something to do with the fact that Generally speaking, they have different audiences. Despite what your uncle's Facebook page might lead you to believe, older Americans are still much more likely than younger Americans to get their news from traditional news sources, like TV or newspapers. In the golf corner of the media market, those decentralized media outlets like No Laying Up and The Fried Egg, there's certainly not existential threats to bigger centralized media like Golf Channel. But that doesn't mean those centralized media aren't trying to learn a thing or two. Let me just start off sort of broad strokes. Like you have having worked in golf media from so many different vantage points, like how has golf media changed just since you got into it? Oh, it's it's definitely gotten a lot younger. That's TV's Shane Bacon, who co-hosts Golf Today on Golf Channel. Shane's an interesting case because not only has he been on both sides of this divide between centralized and decentralized media, he's on both sides of it right now. In addition to co-hosting Golf Today, Shane also co-hosts a really great podcast called Get a Grip with two-time PGA Tour winner Max Homa. And part of the challenge that Shane faces at Golf Channel is the same challenge that Golf Channel faces in general. How to make their work feel more like something that young viewers want to watch without turning off their older viewers. Um, it's gotten, it's gotten, golf's gotten cooler. I, I don't know. I, I was actually, it's funny that, that we're talking about this kind of after the players. 
Um, you know, I was out at the players and I was, uh, you know, taking in, you know, kind of the media world, um, you know, both kind of podcasts, reading, um, seeing who was out there, you know, obviously during the pandemic, you know, everybody's not allowed on the grounds, everybody's not allowed a media badge. Um, and I was just kind of looking at it from my vantage point this past week. And it, it was just crazy because it, it is this overlap, you know, you are seeing, um, you know, this influx of people that care about golf. I don't know if it's from the pandemic. I don't know if it's just this generation, if people are interested in a new sport, um, whatever the reason is, I feel like golf is on this precipice of becoming very, very popular. And I think um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I, I think it's, it's something that people gravitate to as they get older. So, you know, golf is cool as you get in your thirties. Um, but I also think there's just so many young people that are, are breaking on the scene and being good. Um, there's young people that are uh, making golf on social media cool. You know, I, I obviously, I mean, I lean towards Homa in that regard, but you know, Max is a guy that, um, you know, when you dive into his Twitter feed and you really dive into it and you see the people that interact with him, um, you know, he, he's a bona fide celebrity, you know, and um, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, a guy outside of the top four or five in the world would have ever sat in that world before, you know, where they, had, you know, music artists and, and other athletes, um, you know, consistently and constantly interacting. So um, it, it's gotten a lot younger. Um, it's gotten cooler. It has, uh, I, I continue to see more and more media gravitate towards it. You know, it's funny, it's, I, I feel like, and, and maybe I'm really far off here, but um, maybe five, six, seven years ago, um, it seemed like every media outlet started to have somebody covering The Bachelor. You know, and it was this the bachelor became this this kind of it was a sport. There was sports people in, interested in it. Um, there was just traditional media interested in it. And all of a sudden, the bachelor was talked about from all these different outlets and from all these different avenues. And uh, and I'm wondering, in a way, if, if we're seeing that a little bit with golf, you know, there, there isn't really a place that doesn't talk about it. You know, Barstool obsessed with golf and uh, the ringer, you know, I feel like is writing more and more about golf. Um, I even hear more about golf on like a Simmons podcast, you know, one of the more pot popular ones out there. So it, it's just for whatever reason, player, social media, gambling, I think could definitely be, you know, put in that in that scape as well. I think golf is a very easy sport to gamble on um, for whatever reason. I, I really think golf is I think it's just kind of poking the surface right now. I, I think in the next four or five years, you could really see golf uh, take off and, and really it's not going to listen. It's not going to compete with NFL, um, but I could see it you know, being a, being a mainstay on a Saturday, Sunday broadcast, even during other sporting events, just because I think you're, you're just, the numbers are consistently going up. Well, I recently turned 40. And so I certainly can't claim to understand <laughs> anymore how to reach young fans. Um, but all those outlets you just named, you know, those are sort of falling in the, the decentralized bucket that we're talking right. about as you're, having conversations at golf channel about how to talk to those uh, audience members, like what, what sort of themes are you hitting on? Because I, I, when I think about legacy media, legacy sports media in general, not just in golf, trying to reach younger fan bases. Um, there are a lot of examples out there that aren't pretty, you know, the ones who seem to nail it are often, like, well, in golf, you know, you look at like no laying up the fried egg uh, companies that are run by younger people. Um, how do you know, more established golf media, 
have those conversations with younger fans without coming off looking like fuddy-duddies? I, I would say, um, you know, one of the important things with what we've done, um, you know, with our show, you know, obviously the, the show I can speak of being golf today um, at Golf Channel is, is I think just honesty, you know, I mean, you want to be accurate um, and it helps if you can speak um, in some level of intellect, but I, I think just being honest and, and, and being who you are, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned you being 40, but you can still like young stuff. And, and I feel like there was this always this line of the old guy can't talk about this. The young person can't talk about that. And, and I feel like those lines are super blurred at this point. And so, you know, for you being 40 and me being 37 um, and, and it's something that I'm obviously getting nervous with just because you get older and, and all of a sudden you're not the young person on the block anymore, but that doesn't mean you can't speak young. If you're honest, I think when you try to speak young and you become the meme of, you know, you know, um, the, whatever the, the meme is where the, you know, the, what are the guys in the backward hat? And it's like, you know, what's up kids. I mean, you don't want to be that, but like, I, I feel like I skew young because I, I feel like I like stuff. A lot of young people like, I mean, I like, um, I like stuff. I can kind of poke fun at myself. I don't take myself too seriously. Um, even though I do feel like I, I can talk serious about subjects if need be. Um, but I, I just think it's authentic and honest is, is really, really key part of this. That's something I think No Laying Up does an unbelievable job at. You know, I mean, I think they they crush the fact that they are who they are. And you think about Andy, uh, you know, at the fried egg. I mean, Andy is who he is. And and there and that there lies the reason that Shotgun Start is so successful is you've got a couple of very smart guys talking about golf, but not not being afraid to poke fun at themselves, you know. And um, and I and I love the fact that Damon and I can do that on a daily basis with the show we do, is that we're we can talk young, we can talk old, we can talk serious, we can talk, um, you know, non-serious. The, the, the key to all of that is being authentic and, and to be ourselves and to not try to be somebody we're not. And, um, and so that to me is really one of the main things I thought about when taking the job uh, and going to Golf Channel is um, you've got to be authentic first. And, and if, you, if you kind of skew away from that, I think that's when people start to, to call you out and, and, and to not really buy what you're selling. And so, again, I, I think traditionally we think we're getting older you know we're not cool anymore or we're getting older we can't talk to the young audience well sure you can if what you're talking about is is who you are when you guys are putting the show together like what themes are you trying to hit like what what is golf today's role in the golf media landscape if that makes sense yeah i would say that um you know we're trying to be informative we're trying to be entertaining um, and, and we're trying to get out, you know, get out the hits. So I, I again, going back to kind of and kind of the blurred line of this, right? I was always the guy that, you know, was online and was trying to do podcasts and was doing this media and, and you know, day to day TV wasn't something on my mind. So when something happens that, you know, has been seen by everybody on the planet that has Instagram and Twitter. Um, it's still our job to show things like that because our, there's a part of our audience that doesn't have Twitter and Instagram, right? Um, so to, the, a good way to kind of go about that is, you know, we present it sometimes where it's like, we know you've seen this, but, you know, because my dad who watches the show and doesn't have really any internet capabilities in terms of what he can and can't do, when he sees stuff for the first time, he's seen it on a television show, right? So, you know, if Ricky Fowler does some viral video and everybody's seen it, well, there, you've got to remind yourself that there are a lot of people that haven't seen it well. And that's some, sometimes the hard part is because 
while you're trying to play to a younger audience, because that's always what everybody wants, right? The demo's young. You've still got to remind yourself of who you're, um, of who else is watching. So I would say our role is, you know, we're, we, we have conversations about golf on a day-to-day basis that we're trying to have that everybody else is having. So, you know, if Bryson's going to hit driver on six, um, we're talking about it. If Bryson, if Bryson hints at the fact that he's going to hit driver on six at Bay Hill, we're going to talk about it. Um, but we're also trying to find stories that are interesting to us because, you know, one, one thing that, that I've learned in media is, you know, if you're truly invested in the sport, like I'm truly invested in golf. I love golf. Um, I, I would love to take days off of golf and I have a hard time doing that. Um, and, and so if it's interesting to me, it's probably interesting to golf fans, you know, and, and that's not saying that I'm some, you know, person that can speak on these matters. I just find it that if I find it interesting, if Damon finds it interesting, if our producers find it interesting, then it's probably an interesting subject. So I would say it's, it's a daily two hour conversation that I feel like people are having around golf. And that's, what's cool about this versus some of my other outlets that I've had over my life is this is the first time I've been able to talk about this stuff on a daily basis where it's not so much like, I don't know, do we need to hit on that? That's been kind of played out or, you know, is that kind of obscure? Do we really need to bring that up? We don't have enough time to really talk about it with what we're able to do. We always have the time to talk about it. And so I feel like our responsibility is just making it feel like the conversation that golf people would have with golf friends. How does that differ from your approach to uh, the podcast you co-host with Max? Um, I would say that, that we're a little bit more centralized. It just goes back to time. You know, I mean, in terms of time, um, you know, Max and I might have an hour, hour and a half a week to talk about what we want to talk about. So um, the planning going into that, um, I need to make sure it's a little bit more structured. I need to make sure that what I'm writing down and what we're spending lengthy amounts of time on uh, isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to take away from something else we should talk about. Um, so I would just say we have more time. You know, Damon and I have more time to talk about subjects. Um, we have more time to talk about professional golf. You know, I, I feel like with Max and I, um, it's a little bit more about like the, the world Max lives in, in terms of professional golf, the world I live in, in terms of professional golf. Uh, and in terms of golf, for that matter, you know, in general, and then um, outside of that, you know, like like talking about the talking about Justin Thomas winning the players, for instance, right? Max and I can spend time on that, but if we do that, what's that taken away from that people that are listening to the podcast may be interested in hearing? Is it taken away from how Max played this week? Is it taken away from experiences Max Max had on the golf course? Is it taken away from time I had at the players and things I got to see and do? So I would say it's less kind of headline hitting with get a grip and it's more about you know trying to hit the notes that i feel like people listening really want to hear and in terms of golf today we can always hit the hits because if we miss something if something hits the 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 cutting room floor um we have the next day to do it you know and we have two hours the next day to do it so uh there are times when we'll skip over something or we don't get a chance to touch on something on golf today and we always know we have the next day to do that you know I think where golf channel is always going to have the inside curve on, you know, decentralized media outlets is it's, you know, it's ability to really cover the field on coverage of the pro game. And the same thing Definitely. for, you know, your, your golf digest, your golf mags with, if you're a golf fan, you know, 99% of the coverage you consume of, of the pro game is going to be from one of those big legacy media outlets um, what I think is really interesting about Get a Grip is that it's 
it's a decentralized look at the pro game and it's as close a look as you can get. Like it's impossible to get a closer look at than having a, a PGA tour pro co-hosting the show. Exactly. Uh, do you think that that's a model that will be repeated more often over say the next 10 years? Um, just that, you know, here's an opportunity for a guy like Max to, you know, make sure that his perspective uh, and his stories are, are covered out there. Uh, and he has, you know, some creative control over that. I, I think it's definitely going to, I think it already has. I, I know there's already been a number of, of, you know, professional golfers that are um, doing something similar, you know, doing a podcast, doing a podcast with a co-host. Um, I even know there's some that the co-host is in the media you know, the difference to me is that Max is really good at it. And I'm not saying anybody's not good at it. I just think, you know, Max is kind of the unicorn. You know, I mean, he is extremely honest. He's excited about doing it. He likes doing it. I, I think that there lies a big issue is everybody wants to do everything until they have to do it, right? You know, everybody wants to take on all comers. Let's do everything. Let's have a video series. Um, you know, let, let's have a podcast, let's have a column. And then when you got to do it week to week, you go, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. I mean, th that's one of the issues with, you know, the professional athlete world. I mean, you look at a JJ Reddick, who I think is, you know, obviously very, very, very talented um, at sports media, but he wants to do it. You know, I mean, I think he sees that as his future. And so when you see it as your future to get reps in now while you're playing and making millions of dollars, um, it's just bonus money for somebody like Reddick. You know, for Max, I think Max sees, sees this as a chance to be able to talk on the sporty plays and the world he lives in um, through his own voice, obviously, and, and with somebody that he trusts, you know, in me and, and knows I'm not going to, um, you know, hang him out the dryer, put him in a tough position, um, you know, that he doesn't see coming, right? I mean, if, if he gets close to a tournament and loses, we're going to talk about that. I mean, that, that's part of the job. But um, I'm not going to tee him up on some subject that I know he doesn't really have any interest talking about or something that's going to put him in a bad spot. But I, I just feel like there's going to be a lot of people trying to do it. And there's going to be a lot of players, athletes, everybody trying to do it. But as we learn in every walk of life is there's some people that are good and there's some people that aren't good. Max just happens to be really freaking good at it. And so um, the success comes from his honesty. The success comes from him being so open and cool and relatable and, and just great to listen to. But I think people at times forget that there's got to be talent as well. And, um, and so, you know, you and I chat in five years from now, there might be 30 podcasts out there. I mean, think about Rory McIlroy. You know, Rory McIlroy has a podcast with Carson Daly. And, when, and Rory's one of the best players in the history of the world to listen to um, talk about any subject, golf or otherwise. Um, but, you know, Rory's got a trillion things going on. You know, Rory's one of the most popular athletes in the world, not just golfers. So in terms of time, he's just not going to have the time to do a podcast once a week. You know, uh, Max has to carve that time out. And there's weeks we haven't been able to do it. I think with my, my, new, my new job and the responsibilities that I have, first and foremost, a golf channel, there's going to be times we don't do the podcast on a certain week. And that's also part of it, right? That's the understanding from the audience that, you know, this isn't our number one job. Either of us are his number one job. So we're trying to find the time to do it. And we're trying to do it weekly, but uh, you know, you, you have anybody do this for an amount of time and the, the, the luster of the new newness of it wears off. That's when you really test who is very interested in doing this and who isn't. 
And that's been the cool thing about this is I feel like Max has only gotten better at, uh, at, at, at the media side of things. He's only going to get better with it. And his story just continues to grow. I mean, you, you know, think about last year, the first time we did a podcast was 2020 20 waste management, um, where he, you got in contention, had a chance to win, um, you know, through 2020, he had great runs, you know, almost won at Riviera. Um, we had the pandemic that, that we got to deal with and try to come up with some creative stuff there. And he was unbelievable at that. Uh, and then we get this return to golf and Max struggled with his golf game. And he talked very openly about that. That's a hard thing to do, right? I mean, getting a, getting a professional athlete to talk about stuff when it's not going well and to be honest about it, um, to me, that would have been the point where a lot of people would have gone, you know what, I'm going to take a few weeks off of this and we'll, we'll check back in in a little bit. And, and Max didn't do that. And so, again, there'll, be, there'll definitely be replications of it. I just think uh, I just think he's really awesome at, at talking. And I think he's really awesome at being who he is. And, and that's, to me, why people gravitate towards him. And Shane's hitting on an important point there. And to be clear, these are my words, not his. But in his work at Golf Channel, authenticity and a personal connection with viewers is great. But it's not mission critical. Because a lot of people are going to turn on Golf Channel every morning simply because they like golf. And if you want to watch something about golf on TV, then Golf Channel is really your only guarantee. On the Get a Grip podcast that Shane co-hosts with Max Homa, authenticity is probably still not the difference between life and death, because when your co-host is a popular, successful PGA Tour pro, a lot of people are going to tune in just because of the rarity of that insider's perspective, and not because of the quality of the show. Although, to be clear, Get a Grip is terrific. I mean, think about Roy McElroy's podcast, which Shane mentioned. Are people listening to that because it's good or because it's Roy McElroy? Authenticity undoubtedly has something to do with it, right? But that's probably not the biggest reason that most people tune in. Even in that purgatory between centralized and decentralized media, though, authenticity is more of a factor. By the time you transition all the way over into full-blown, decentralized, independent outlets, that authenticity, that personal connection between the storyteller and the listener, it's absolutely critical. All right, one sec. Let me see if I can get these audio sources switched over. That's DJ Pihowski of the hugely popular No Laying Up. DJ has worked in just about every neck of the golf media woods. Golf Week, the PGA Tour... Now with No Laying Up and the Golfer's Journal, which is a quarterly print magazine. When No Laying Up burst onto the scene in 2013, first as an irreverent Twitter account and later with a podcast, it had a lot of things going for it. The ecosystem of decentralized golf media wasn't nearly as crowded then as it is now. There weren't really any golf podcasts to speak of. But No Laying Up had something else going for it, too. They were authentic. People related to them. And it's hard to imagine them having the level of success they've enjoyed without that connection. So my impression of No Laying Up before I started was, um, you know, I was just a huge fan, like as a fan, you know, I was someone who followed the game very closely. I worked in the game, but also, you know, was obsessed with watching every minute of coverage that I possibly could. And, uh, you know, for, for, reasons that I'm sure we can get into in this conversation there was a lot of disconnect it seemed like between how I 
talked about the game and thought about the game and followed the game and how other kind of media outlets or personalities or whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, talked about the game and covered the game. It, everything felt, um, extremely vanilla, extremely stodgy, um, way too serious and reverential and, uh, just kind of not, not, it didn't really make you very excited to, to follow the game. And so I think Twitter played a massive part in, you know, allowing all these other kind of entities and personalities to pop up and, and really make it feel like more of a, a, you know, I don't want to say a two-way conversation, but at least more of, you know, something relatable and personable and, and something that you could kind of digest and look forward to actually following. It was a great companion piece to sitting, you know, it can be almost kind of a, in a weird way, almost kind of lonely sitting and watching golf for a long time on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, it's slow. It moves, it moves slowly. It's, there's a lot of commercials. It's uh, rarely exciting. You know, I think the, the exciting moments are extremely exciting, but the, uh, the bulk of it is, is pretty slow and boring. And so it's, it was nice to have something to fill the gaps. And so that's what, you know, it was mostly Solly uh, on Twitter. By the way, that's Chris Solomon, one of DJ's co-conspirators at No Lineup. You know, it was mostly Solly uh, on Twitter doing that stuff. And then when the podcast started, I mean, I was, you know, I had to be in the in the first, uh, the first 10 listeners, I would guess, of the podcast because I was so plugged in on all the Twitter stuff. So, uh, yeah, I was just a, a massive fan before, before I got involved. Well, and that disconnect between how regular people talk about golf and how legacy golf media talk about golf that's still there where does that come from because i mean you look at the way other sports are covered you know the, i think back to when espn2 launched uh and it was more of an mtv style look at sports it was still a little weird but but probably hit closer in tone to the way people were talking about sports then and but you know centralized coverage of the NBA, the NFL, uh, even Major League Baseball. It's all changed over the last 25 years to reflect you know, the, the way human beings talk about those sports. Why? What is it about golf that has eluded that trajectory? That's a good question. I mean, we always like to, we always like to joke about, you know, the fact, and this is not really aimed at anybody specifically, it's kind of the industry thing. And I think you can, you can pick this up if you go walk the floor at the the PGA show every year. I mean, it, it always just feels like golf is, is five to 10 years behind everything else, which is where we always joke, you know, if you want to have some sort of disruptive breakthrough idea in golf, just kind of look at what other industries were doing about five years ago. Um, so it's, it's fairly easy to, uh, it's fairly easy to pick your spots and, and seem far more innovative than you probably are. So, uh, I think we always kind of laugh about that, but as far as what causes it, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, it's, if I was, uh, this is a total, you know, personal hypothesis here. So not really rooted in, in all that much, but I, I would have to assume in the modern era here, Tiger has to have a lot to do with that. I mean, I know golf has always, you know, certainly not been the most progressive uh, forward thinking, uh, you know, establishment in, in the world. But I think when it comes to media, I, I think Tiger has had such a, he, he almost just feels like he put the industry on autopilot for 25 years, you know, where it was like, no matter what he did, if he played poorly, if he played great, if he showed up, if he didn't show up, I mean, it was like, well, we're going to kind of hit our numbers and the same number of people are going to tune in no matter what. So 
let's just kind of keep this, you know, keep the lights on, keep these things on the rails. And, and we don't really need to innovate all that much because it's fairly understandable. I think you can, you know, all of those legacy outlets, and this is far, you know, this goes back to far before I was, you know, part of the golf industry. I think all of them probably spent a lot of time, you know, during those years trying to innovate and trying all these different new things. And I think when you have uh, someone like Tiger, who we always joke, I mean, is just like a, he's just like a black hole of, of eyeballs and attention. I mean, he just sucks up all the energy of a tournament of a, a telecast, no matter what, I mean, it's just, everything is drawn to him. And so when that happens, I think it can probably be pretty frustrating to spend a bunch of time, you know, trying to innovate and make people really, really, really care about, you know, Jeff Maggard's story. When, when Tiger's doing something crazy on the other side of the golf course, it's like, you know, you can probably spin your wheels in the mud for quite a while trying to make that work and, and get fairly defeated when it doesn't. And so I, I could see where it was probably pretty easy to just lean into, you know, let's just put Tiger on the screen and, and everything will kind of take care of itself. And I think what was kind of interesting was that you had so many people over the, you know, however many years kind of saying, and a lot of people from other sports saying this too, but, you know, kind of the doomsday callers of like, Hey, when Tiger's, when Tiger's not playing anymore, you know, what are you guys going to do? What are, what are the ways you're going to get more people into this and, and how are you going to create more stars and yada, yada, yada. And I think with all Tiger's kind of false starts, you know, that he's had, it was almost, it was almost a best and worst case scenario for golf. It seemed like, because it was, you know, you had all this time where you could have been kind of cultivating all these, these new guys, Rory and Spieth and Justin Thomas and Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson and all those guys. Um, but also you had Tiger just kind of hanging on in the, in the periphery. Right. So it was like, instead of anybody ever really being able to fully embrace those guys, I feel like it was still always, you know, Oh, Tiger's making another comeback this week or Tiger had another surgery or, you know, Tiger made the cut on the number or Tigers actually have a chance to win now at, in Atlanta or, you know what I mean? It was just kind of this, it was never, uh, he was never fully in or fully out. It was always kind of this, I don't want to say distraction because it's, it makes sense why everybody would be so drawn to that. But it was, I think probably kept people from, uh, really moving on. And that's, that's, I guess, very, very hyper-focused on the professional game and the, and the, you know, how we create superstars and talk about superstars and all that stuff. But I, I do think that drives a lot of the, a lot of the coverage, certainly. So it's, it's an interesting place to at least start. Well, then fall of 2017 rolls around and uh, you've got this nice uh, respectable job at the PGA tour uh, that, you know, your, your parents would be very proud of you for. And, uh, and then uh, along comes no laying up. What, what made you want to give up this very uh, sort of safe uh, uh, sort of job to, to jump into something so new and uncertain? Uh, well, listen, Will, I like to live dangerously. Certainly. <laughs> um, no, I think for me, it was uh, hitting a point. So working at the PJ Tour was absolutely fantastic in every way. I got to go to a ton of different golf tournaments all over the world. I got to meet a ton of great players. I worked with a lot of awesome people. It was a, it was a job doing, you know, social media when, when that all was kind of starting. So it was, uh, it was a very interesting role in that, you know, you got into a lot of, uh, kind of higher up meetings a lot quicker than you would have if you were working in, you know, say accounting or, or finance or it or something like that. I mean, cause it was, 
social media quickly became something that was, you know, touched player relations and competitions and the broadcast and the sales teams and all of those things. So it was a great uh, education to just kind of learn how the tour works and, and a lot of different um, aspects of it. I think for me personally, though, you, you do that for five or six years, like I did. And it kind of, uh, I think for me, what, what it was, was I quickly realized that there's a difference between golf and pro golf. And I hadn't really realized that uh, over those five or six years, you know, I think slowly that line kind of got blended into, you know, golf equals whatever PJ tour event is, is going on this week. And I think as more and more travel stuff popped up, I think, you know, honestly, as I started learning a little bit more about golf courses and, and some of the work that Andy Johnson did with the fried egg and started reading more books and started traveling a little bit more and playing other places, I think you kind of start to realize like, oh man, you know, I think I, I love golf. I don't know that I necessarily love pro golf. And uh, so that was kind of the, the impetus, I guess, or the idea that kind of started me down that road of wanting to go do something else. And then when I saw you know, things like no laying up and, and the, uh, the golfer's journal as well, which I was, you know, talking to some friends in the very infancy of that, when they were trying to get that off the, off the ground and started, you know, I kind of realized like, Hey, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can split my time between these two entities for X number of dollars per month and just kind of figure it out from there and, and try to do some, you know, wade into pro golf kind of when I wanted to, but really focus my time and energy a lot more on, you know, recreational golf and golf travel and just kind of the way that, that I like to enjoy the game, uh, much more than, you know, FedEx cup points and, and all those sorts of things, which are all essential in their own way to the golf ecosystem. But something that I had probably, probably talked about enough at that point. Are legacy golf media like golf channel, golf digest, are they just completely different animals covering completely different subject matter from no laying up fried egg and other new media, or is there the potential for even competition between the two? Yeah, I think there is, I think there's definitely uh, both potential for crossover and also strict lines of delineation. And what I am, am pretty hypersensitive to uh, just having been on both sides, working at, you know, a very journalistic place like Golf Week and a place like the PGA Tour and now doing what we do now. You know, I, I want to make sure that we're not trying to speak out of both sides of our mouth here and, and say, you know, oh, we've we've found it. Here's the answer. Why aren't you guys all doing this? Because what we don't do is objective news reporting. And that's extremely, extremely important. And it's something that is getting harder and harder and harder, at least while the the current model of of journalism is still kind of employed in the in the game of golf. Meaning, you know, we put stuff up on websites and in magazines, and we put ads around it. And the more clicks we get, you know, the more money we uh, we make, which is obviously a, a pretty simplified version of it. But that's that's kind of the gist. And so where we go with a lot of that stuff is you know, it's obviously very personality based. And I think people are, I think we, hopefully when we're doing a good job, I think we tend to serve as kind of an avatar for hopefully the, you know, the everyday golf fan or in our case with no laying up and, and the golfers journal, like the very, very invested everyday golf fan. 
and so I think there's things that probably can cross over. I mean, I think, you know, personality based stuff is, is good in a lot of sense, especially when you can be objective and, and you're not, you know, not everything is, is pay for play, which we really try to avoid, especially on travel stuff or anything where we're going to have like massive conflicts. I mean, we're, we're of course going to have conflicts on equipment. We have a massive, you know, sponsor in Callaway, but I think we like to be pretty transparent about that. And, uh, when those sorts of issues come up, but I think, you know, a, a traditional model is it's just going to be really tough until they move away from kind of those display ads and, and, you know, ads in the magazine really being the lifeblood of, of what goes on. I think what's interesting about a lot of those legacy places is that they do a lot better work than it it probably seems at times. I don't mean for that to sound backhanded at all. What I mean by that is I think everybody everybody thinks that those groups are so clickbaity and so just, you know, Tiger Woods said what, you know, Paige Sporanic posted what uh, sort of links. And they certainly do those things, but they also do really great features and really great work that I don't think are celebrated internally, probably based on the models that they have to work off of, if that makes sense. I, I think that there's so many stakeholders at a massive company for understandable reasons. And at the end of the day, I mean, they're, they're going to have to look at what drives the most traffic and what, you know, gets the most eyeballs and, and all of those things. So where, I think a lot of the the features and the really substantive like reporting type stuff just ends up being kind of box checkers, which is really frustrating as a golf fan because I think I think where the disconnect is is it's kind of a becomes a volume game at some point where you have to serve a certain number of of impressions and eyeballs and clicks and all that stuff to to hit the numbers that you need to hit. And I, I think where it would probably get frustrating to me is that I don't know that those numbers exist in the game of golf in order to make it sustainable. That's where I think like the model just doesn't make sense to me and hasn't made sense for a very long time, which is, you know, you're trying to uh, have the lifeblood of your business be let's get you know, hundreds of thousands of people to click on these links. And I think there's maybe just hundreds of thousands of people that don't necessarily care or spend the right amount of time on the internet or are interested in, you know, the things that, that the super hardcore fans are interested in, if that makes sense. I mean, I feel like the people who prop up the industry and who buy all the equipment and who do all of, all of these things to keep kind of the golf industry moving, I think, there's not really enough of them to actually drive the traffic needed to make a, a volume game like that makes sense. Of course, legacy golf media didn't invent that model. It's basically the 21st century version of the same business model that those legacy golf media were using in the 20th century. Try to get as many eyes on as many ads as you can. No laying up relies on advertising too. But in late 2019, they stepped out onto a limb that media outlets, both inside golf and outside of it, have been reluctant to test during the internet era. They asked their readers and listeners to support them directly with a program called The Nest. This is not so different than the push that the New York Times and Washington Post made during the 2016 presidential campaign to increase subscriptions and put most of their news stories behind a paywall. To the news industry's pleasant surprise, readers responded. 
subscriptions at both the Times and the Post soared. No Lane-Ups pitch hasn't exactly mirrored that approach. Most of No Lane-Ups content is still free to anyone. But for anyone willing to chip in $90 a year, there's an extra podcast per month, access to their website's message board, and discounts on merchandise. It's still early, but if it provided a stable financial base, if outlets like No Laying Up could rely primarily on their readers and listeners for financial support, then they could avoid the conflicts of interest that pervade many of golf's centralized media outlets. I think a lot of what we do is, you know, we try to uh, just, this sounds so fucking cheesy, but we, we try to respect the the audience's time and eyeballs and attention as much as possible, meaning we don't beat anybody over the head with ads. We don't, you know, we do probably a, a fifth as many ads on our podcast as, as most other podcasts our size do. We don't beat people over the head with emails, you know, marketing emails. We don't beat them over the head with video advertisements. We try to really, really, really respect people's eyeballs. And it, I think when you do that, people are willing to kind of make up the difference or more willing to, you know, invest in what they really have grown to enjoy. And that's what we've definitely found with the nest. And we're hardly the first ones to do that. I mean, look at the golfer's journal is, is reader supported. You know, they have a couple ads up front, but the bulk of their revenue comes from reader supported subscriptions. And, and certainly that's a higher subscription price than what you'd get for golf digest or whatever. But I, I think it also makes people, far more invested. And I think that's, it's a real, like, it's a very two way street, right? Where you have to, it takes a long time. Nobody can just do that off, off the bat. But once you have that audience that you've kind of trusted and they've trusted you and, uh, it, it's a really good way to have kind of that two way street, I think. And look at what Jeff Shackelford's done with, you know, he just launched another, newsletter, the quadrilateral, which is a similar, a similar model as well. Um, it just feels like such a no brainer that that's where things are going to head because otherwise you're kind of this, uh, you know, I always look at, at us, it's like, we're a, a niche section of a extremely niche sport. And it's like, man, we just don't have, if we spent all day trying to get, you know, millions of people to download the podcast, a, it would become unrecognizable so fast and turn off all the people that we really want to be listening and we really you know have have been listening for a really long time uh and b it would just get exhausting and and not fun and like we'd have to do a lot of different things that we don't want to do and so uh that's where i I think the you know it's it's just really interesting to me to see what is going to happen over the next five or ten years in golf media because it just seems like every decision is made with this idea of, you know, let's get more, more people into the game, more people into the game, more people into the game. And all of these big outlets just seem to be completely ignoring to an extent, just completely ignoring, you know, what actual hardcore fans like these, these core fans that have been there for a hundred years have grown to actually enjoy about, about the product. So it's, it's tough. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not envy envious of, of solving that challenge at a really big company with a ton of stakeholders and a, a bunch of kind of middle management that's all trying to kind of justify their positions. But, uh, but what makes the most sense to me is, is definitely that kind of scaled down a little bit more lo-fi, uh, subscription based stuff is just, seems like so much more of a no brainer than trying to, you know, get 5 million people to click on 
on every single piece you put up, which seems like a, a losing game. The last thing that I asked DJ was what he thought no laying up would look like in five years. He said that ideally it would look a lot like it looks right now. And if this model of relying primarily on readers and listeners actually works, then that necessarily means that the readers and listeners are in charge. They're the ones that have to be answered to. DJ used the example of a YouTube premiere, one of their video series, Strapped. The 2,000 people who show up and tune in for that, DJ said, those are the people that No Lane Up wants to keep happy. Which brings us, in a roundabout way, back to the questions raised in that last scene in Three Days of the Condor. Will the New York Times print Redford's story about this nefarious government conspiracy, or won't they? Ultimately, it comes down to who makes the decision and who that person answers to. There's a quote attributed to various political philosophers that says something like, every nation gets the government that it deserves. I don't know if that's true. But maybe people get the press that they deserve. If the key to less conflicted media, whether we're talking about golf media or non-golf media, centralized or decentralized, if the key to fewer conflicts of interest is a business model that relies on readers and listeners for financial support, then that hinges on whether those readers and listeners will respond. If they do, and if media outlets become not just ethically obligated to their readers, but also financially obligated to them, then it sure would take a lot of mystery out of who a media outlet's gatekeepers answer to. Well, that's episode one of the Line 4 podcast. And if you're still around at this point, then first of all, thank you for listening. Seriously. Line 4's calling card has been and always will be storytelling above all else. I've resisted podcasting to this point for two reasons. For one thing, there are already a lot of tremendous golf podcasts out there. I subscribe to more than I can listen to. For another thing, I wasn't sure that the question and answer format that most podcasts lean on was the best format for the storytelling that's so important at line four. So where I've landed is this magazine style format that focuses more on topics than on interview subjects. When I'm doing it right, it'll be part this American life, part stream of conscious thought. But a lot of work goes into it, more than I expected, really. So my goal is going to be to push out a new episode about once per month, at least initially. But I've already started work on episode two, so it is coming. In the meantime, if you liked what you listened to here, then there are three things that you can do to support the podcast. And actually, you can do these things even if you didn't like the podcast. First, please subscribe. It would be my honor. Second, share it with your friends. And third, please leave a five-star review in the iTunes store or wherever you download your podcasts. I know everybody asks for that, and I know it's obnoxious, but it's enormously helpful, especially to a new podcast like this. I really appreciate you. And oh yeah, don't forget to buy a Line 4 golf towel. They're $24 a piece plus $2 for postage. Shoot me a direct message for payment info. On Twitter, you can catch me at either at Will Bardwell or at Line 4. 
This has been the Line 4 Podcast. I'm Will Bardwell, signing off.